You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series, our, our, our major fall sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And you go, Deuteronomy? Isn't that in the Old Testament? Let me give you some reasons for this series. First of all, you remember that our theme for the year is setting our hope on the living God. That phrase comes from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But he didn't invent the phrase living God. That's a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. That phrase, living God. And you know where it begins? Deuteronomy. It comes from the lips of Moses, whose whole world was turned around one day, on ordinary days, he walked by an ordinary bush that was on fire, something to be expected, I suppose, on a hot day in the wilderness. But it was not consumed. And what he didn't expect was that a voice, a voice not of a religion, not of a creed, but of the living God. And Moses marveled, and he shared this in Deuteronomy 5 with the Israelites. Has any nation ever heard the voice of the living God? And that phrase started to take on meaning. And so we're going to look at Deuteronomy. We'll see how that... um, Life with the living God unfolds. That's the life to which you and I have been called. And a few other reasons to think about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy explains the law to us. In fact, Deuteronomy means second law. It's the name we give for the book. It actually comes from a mistranslation in Deuteronomy 17, which is about how the king was supposed to have a second copy of the law. It's not really a second law, but the king was supposed to keep a a copy of the law with him at all times. But it is a kind of an exposition of the law. It's a restatement of the law. Because the book of Deuteronomy is really three sermons that Moses himself gives at the end of his life. He's uh, 120 years old. He's standing on the plains of Moab, just southeast of uh, the Dead Sea. Israel has not yet gone into the promised land, and he's with the Israelites, the children of the generation that came through the Exodus. This is their kids now. Remember, Israel has wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and now at last they've come to the brink of the promised land, and the children are all that's left. Moses, 120 years old, looking at a people who are 60 years old or younger, and he says, I want you to know this. I know I can't go with you, but here's what you need to know about life with the living God as you go into this promised land. And you could imagine that knowing he wasn't going and that this was his last shot to speak truth into their lives, what he said would matter. It mattered to them and it matters to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Another reason I think it's so important for us to understand Deuteronomy is it gives us the theology of redemption. I think of it as the Romans of the Old Testament. You know how the book of Romans is the most systematic theological uh, explication of redemption, what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection. In the same way, Deuteronomy is the most thorough exposition of what God did in redemption by uh, uh, calling a people out of slavery in Egypt for his own possession. Deuteronomy tells that story. And finally, it's a hinge. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in what's called the Pentateuch, which means the first five books of the Bible. 
the, the, the Torah, uh, Jews call it. It's the, it's the fifth book. And it, it kind of sums up everything that goes before, but it also is the beginning of the history, uh, the historical books of Israel. And the prophets themselves, they would look back and they would constantly be calling Israel to God's promises in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to understand the Old Testament at all, if you want to understand Jesus' Bible at all, you have to understand uh, Deuteronomy. So we're going to look at it. As we do, it's not just a Bible study. It's a call to engage in your life and in mine, no matter who we are, with the living God. Today we're going to talk about living guidance. Because these Israelites, as they stand before Moses on the plains of Moab, have a decision to make. They're at a decision point. They are standing right in the very place where their parents had made a horrible decision. I mean, 40 years earlier, their parents had been nearby, uh, um, about to go into Israel. And Moses said, so what are you going to do? And they said, well, we're going to send out some spies and check it out. And then we're going to have a little conference. And we're going to see, you know, what we decide. And now, now their children are standing right here, basically in the same place. And Moses says, I'm not going to give you the right answer, but I am going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about mom and dad and how it went for them. And that's the first sermon uh, right here, the first of the three great sermons in Deuteronomy. And uh, we'll learn about guidance. So I want to invite you to open up to uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1. And I'm actually going to fiddle with the text a little bit, uh, the, the, the verses that we read. It's on page 138 of the Pew Bible. But rather than what's printed, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. So if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read aloud God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. By the way, when the, uh, the, the book of the covenant was discovered in the 7th century, they stood aloud. To, 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 they stood and read aloud uh, God's covenant, which is probably what we're reading today. Uh, after we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You can, if you believe it, can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Uh, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, it is because the Lord hates us that he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we headed? Our kindred have made our hearts melt by reporting, the people are stronger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified up to heaven. We actually saw there the offspring of the Anakim. I said to you, have no dread or fear of them. The Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as one carries a child, all the way that you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you have no trust in the Lord your God who goes before you on the way to seek out a place for you to camp, in fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you the route you should take. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Guidance. We all need it. 
I think particularly those of you who are back in school might need a little guidance. You realize that University of Washington began its classes, so those of you who are students or staff or faculty are back at work at the UW. So I thought I would turn uh, to Dave Barry for a little bit of advice on how to pick a major. That's a very stressful decision, and um, I think this will be helpful to you. Uh, Dave writes, college is basically a bunch of rooms where you sit for roughly 2,000 hours and try to memorize things. The 2,000 hours are spread out over four years, and you spend the rest of the time sleeping and trying to get dates. <laughs> basically, you learn two kinds of things in college. Things you will need to know later in life, two hours. Uh, these include how to make collect telephone calls and get beer stains out of your pajamas. And then things you'll need to know, not need to know later in life, 1,998 hours. These are the things you learn in classes whose names end in ology, osophy, istry, ix, and so on. The idea is you memorize these things, then write them down in little exam books, then forget them. If you fail to forget them, you become a professor and have to stay in college for the rest of your life. <laughs> After you've been in college for a year or so, you're supposed to choose a major which is the subject you intend to memorize and forget the most things about. Here's a very important piece of advice. Be sure to choose a major that does not involve known facts and right answers. This means you must not major in mathematics, physics, biology, or chemistry because these subjects involve actual facts. If, for example, you major in mathematics, you're going to wander into class one day and the professor will say, Define the cosine integer of the quadrant of a rhomboid binary axis and extrapolate your result to five significant vertices. That was probably really hard. <laughs> I think I should have sent my notes. But if you don't come up with exactly the answer the professor has in mind, you fail. The same is true of chemistry. If you write in your exam book that carbon and hydrogen combine to form oak, your professor will flunk you. He wants you to come up with the exact same answer he and all the other chemists have agreed on. Scientists are extremely snotty about this. <laughs> so you should major in subjects like English, philosophy, psychology, and sociology. Subjects in which nobody really understands what anybody else is talking about and which involve virtually no actual facts. I attended classes on all these subjects, so I'll give you a quick overview of each. Here's my personal major, English. This involves writing papers about long books you have read little snippets of just before class. <laughs> Here's a tip on how to get good grades on your English papers. Never say anything about a book that anybody with any common sense would say. For example, suppose you're studying Moby Dick. Anybody with any common sense would say that Moby Dick is a big white whale, since the characters in the book refer to it as a big white whale roughly 11,000 times. So in your paper, you say Moby Dick is actually the Republic of Ireland. Your professor, who's sick to death of reading papers and never liked Moby Dick anyway, will think you are enormously creative. If you can regularly come up with lunatic interpretations of simple stories, you should major in English. <laughs> Philosophy. Basically, this involves sitting in a room and deciding there is no such thing as reality and then going to lunch. <laughs> you should major in philosophy if you plan to take a lot of drugs. Uh, psychology. This involves talking about rats and dreams. Psychologists are obsessed with rats and dreams. I once spent an entire semester training a rat to punch little buttons in a certain sequence, then training my roommate to do the same thing. <laughs> the rat learned much faster. My roommate is now a doctor. Finally, sociology. 
For sheer lack of intelligibility, sociology is far and away the number one subject. I sat through hundreds of hours of sociology courses and read gobs of sociology writing, and I never once heard or read a coherent statement. This is because sociologists want to be considered scientists. So they spend most of their time translating simple, obvious observations into scientific-sounding code. If you plan to major in sociology, you have to learn to do the same thing. For example, suppose you have observed that children cry when they fall down. You should write, methodological observation of the sociometrical behavior tendencies of prematurated isolates indicates that a causal relationship exists between groundward tropism and lacrimony or crying behavior forms. If you can keep this up for 50 or 60 pages, you will get a large government grant. I'm going to get some emails on that. Uh, that's Dave Barry, not me. But good advice. And if you remember back, if you're a graduate, the stress of trying to declare a major and go, I don't know, A or B or C, uh, you remember, it seemed like a really big decision. Like the whole course of your future life hangs on this decision. And truthfully, so many decisions feel that way. I remember when my wife and I... Um, decided to have a, our, our children, you know. So we went to the physician and said, what do we need to know about having children? And he looked at us and like, you're kidding. You, you need help with this? <laughs> and I, no, I mean, like, are there vitamins and stuff or, you know. And, and, and one of the big decisions was um, what kind of diapers to put on the baby. Who knew? You know, we spent the whole nine-month gestation period trying to figure out what kind of diapers was the right kind to buy because, you know, you, you, you wash them yourself and you get all the chemicals that go off into this, you know, or you buy the disposable and that you fill the landfills with these. And we went back and forth and read all these studies about it. And, and my wife, she points out, hey, all the studies are done by Procter & Gamble and they sell Pampers. And I, and I said, oh, yeah, but you're from Cincinnati, so that's a good thing. So it just got, it kept getting more and more complicated. You know what it's like? It's like, Contacts or glasses, paper, or plastic, I, I, don't, I don't know. But whether it seems like a big decision or a small decision, hundreds of decisions. You can't go to the grocery store today. Someone told me 12 varieties of Cheerios. I mean, it's mind-numbing, the choices uh, that we have to make. And there's a thing New York Times is calling decision fatigue. You know, it just kind of wears you down by the end of the day, choice after choice. So we feel like Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Guidance. We all need it. And here is a nation standing poised to make probably the biggest corporate decision they'd ever made. What do we do? We're going to take the risk and go forward into the land that God's promised us, we know it's there, milk and honey, and giants, technologies that far exceed ours, fortifications up to the heaven. Or are we going to go backwards to the wilderness, take a risk there? We know it's there, deprivation, it's familiar, we've been doing it for 40 years, it's where I grew up, home sweet home. What are you going to do? And we might like Moses to tell us point blank, what is God's will for our life? But what's interesting is Moses doesn't. He says, let me give you a sermon. Let me tell you a story. And then I'm going to let you decide. And what he tells in the story is not anything new, actually. In fact, if you're a reader of the Old Testament, Numbers 13 and 14 give you the same story in more depth. 
Here he tells the story very selectively and discreetly. I'm not going to read it for you, but if you read the, you know, the rest of the sermon, what you see is Moses says, let me tell you, this is a story of how God's will shifted. And you go, oh, no. Don't tell me God actually changes his will. It's hard enough to know what it is when I think it's one thing. To think that it might be two things is just unbearable. But yes, he says, see, what happened was, first God's will was Canaan. Uh, you came, he said, I promise this land, I'm going to give it to you. And you said, well, let's send out spies. The spies come back, they give the report. And you said, we don't actually choose Canaan. We choose the wilderness. And that's what happened. The Israelites said, no, thank you. We're going to go back to Egypt. And they developed a plan to go back and started to make arrangements. And then um, God said, well, okay, you can go back into the wilderness if that's your choice. By the way, none of you will ever set foot in the promised land if you go that direction. And they go, Oh, we don't like the sound of that. Uh, and so maybe we'll actually go into the promised land. And God says, not now, because I'm not going to the promised land. We've already decided we're going into the wilderness. And uh, they, they strap up for battle, and they go into the promised land, they go into Canaan, and the Amorites uh, chase them out like bees chase them out. They don't get honey, they get bees. Why? Because God had said, don't do that. It's not safe for you anymore, because I'm not going with you. And God said... Uh, now, now my will for you is the wilderness. That's where we're going to go together. And he said, I forgave this generation. He did forgive them. Didn't affect their eternal destiny, but it did affect how they were going to spend their time. There were consequences. Because what God knows is that in the wilderness, he has an ability to be able to convince them of his love for them and teach them to depend upon that love. We read of that story, by the way, in Deuteronomy 8 which we won't take time for now. But what I want you to see is Moses tells a story. It could be very confusing. When you're in the wilderness, God's will for you is Canaan. When you're in Canaan, God's will for you is the wilderness. Wait a minute. What's a fellow to do? Sometimes you and I feel this way. But here's the point, I think, if we read this story carefully. It's not where you are. It's who you're with that matters. It's not the directions that God might give you, but withholds. It's the guide that God offers freely in himself. It's not A or B. It's the living God. That's where guidance comes from. So, uh, there's something bigger for you and for me than the choice that we face today. And I want to give you two uh, implications of this. And the first is this. Become yourself. And the second one will be trust the living God. But just first, the become yourself. Uh, relationship with the living God is a real relationship. Most often, none of us really want a real relationship. We really don't. I really want my wife to be who I think she should be. Uh, I, I tell the waiter, she'll have the salmon, and she comes and orders the steak. And I've been with this woman for 30 years. It's like she's a real human being. Yeah. One theologian calls the power of not understanding, being willing to let another person really be who they are. And God does that for us. He's a real person, and you're a real person also. It's not a relationship in only one person, in which only one person has a will, and the other conforms to it. It's a relationship of two persons. It's a loving relationship. We see this in the story. Interestingly enough, the language here in the paragraph that we read together uh, depicts God as Israel's spy. He says, Moses says, he went before you, the Lord. 
he scouted out or sought out the land. This is exactly the language that Moses has used in the prior paragraphs where he's talking about what you did with the spies. Yes, God's gone before you. He's done everything that the spies would do. You really don't need your own spies if you have God. And yet, it wasn't a bad plan for them to send out the spies. And God actually affirms their desire. Moses says, hey, it's a good plan to send the spies. Why? Because God wants us to make our own decisions. He gives us the freedom, indeed, even the responsibility to make choices in life. So it's a good idea to send out spies, understand a little bit about the context, the the choices that we have to make, the good ones and the bad ones, see the route. God affirms that. And, uh, by the way, allows them to live with the consequences of their choices. And he does the same for us. It's a real relationship. This seems like bad news to us. Um, We want God to simplify our lives. Just tell me what to do. A couple of years ago, I had a virus on my computer and so I called up the antivirus company, you know, an 800 number. It was an emergency, and I thought, this thing is going to shut down real fast if someone doesn't come and do They said, Mr. Hinton, are you on the Internet right now? And I said, yes, I'm on the Internet. They said, would you mind if we take control of your computer? I said, please, I can't, you do. So what I watched was, and maybe you've seen this before, the, the cursor starts to move on the screen, and windows open and close, and the settings are changing, and I'm going, wow. Don't you wish God would do that for your life? It's immediately what came to my mind. I wish God would just say, I'm in prayer one day. I said, God, get me out of this problem. I don't know what to do. And he'd say, George, are you connected to the spiritual Internet? I go, I am now. And he just starts to do all this stuff through me. He's saying the right thing, doing the right actions, healing, renewing, bringing joy and peace and love. And everybody's happy around me. I'm thinking, this is great. But it's not what God does with our lives. He does not. He doesn't control you. Or override your freedom. He invites you to grow, to become yourself. Not to be yourself, but to become yourself as he sees you. We oftentimes ask the wrong question when we say, God, what is your will for my life? We start reading tea leaves. Bruce Waltke, a great Old Testament scholar who was actually sitting right there in the earlier service, and um, He's got a great book on finding God's will. And he says, you know, the modern practice of trying to find God's will in the way that we do is more similar to divination, pagan divination, than it is to a biblical relationship with the living God. Reading tea leaves, looking for omens, splitting entrails, trying to decode what's the hint, what's the secret message. Theologians talk about God's will in two ways. There's God's revealed will, and there's God's hidden will. It's very important to understand. God's revealed will is just really clear. There are statements throughout the Bible that say what God wants. Uh, for example, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says, it's not rocket science. It's walking with the living God. In justice and in love. And so that's his revealed will. On the other hand, his hidden will is the will that God exercises through his divine providence as he oversees the affairs of history in his creation. Some things he makes happen, other things he allows to happen, but that's his hidden will. And guess what? It's hidden because he doesn't intend to tell us what it is. What God calls us to is not to try to guess at his hidden will is to obey his revealed will as stewards. And stewardship is the key concept to growing into who you are. It's to be a steward. 
It's as, as we steward the gifts that really belong to God, but God has entrusted them to us for us to make decisions on his behalf. You belong to God. Your gifts, your aspirations, your connection, your relationships, all of that. And God says, you make the decisions. It's my thing, but you make the decisions on my behalf. And as you do, you begin to make decisions. If you make them well, that's called wisdom. Then you begin to take on the character quality of God. You become like him. That's what the Bible calls godliness. So philosopher Philip Carey tells us that our attempt at, quote, finding God's will is really an attempt to short-circuit this learning process by taking our own decisions out of the loop. Just tell me, God. That's why God disapproves of it. The steward who tries to avoid making his own decisions is the one he condemns as disobedient. Remember Jesus' parable of the one who buries his talent? He, he was unwilling to make his decisions, his own decisions. He just buried it. It's your problem, God. That's not stewardship. To make a good decision, you need to start with a good question. A question about what is good? Is this a good way to invest my talents? Is this a good person to marry? Can we be good parents together? And so on. But in answering such questions, there's no formula and no substitute for wisdom. Which is why when young people have to make a big decision, say, about marriage, it's utterly inappropriate, it's, it's, sorry, it's utterly appropriate that they learn from the wisdom of those who've had to make such decisions before. They need help from outside themselves. Above all, they need help from God, which is why they should pray. What they need to pray for is help in discerning between good and bad ways to invest their talents and their lives. But that's simply another way of saying they must pray for wisdom. So if you're a student and you're thinking about your major, you're asking the question from a steward's perspective. What's the best way? What's the good way to invest who God has made me to be and what he's given me? Same thing with our, with our money. It's God's money. And, and, and the question is, how much does he get and how much do I get? The question is, how do I invest my wealth in such a way that God is glorified? Because it's his wealth. Some of us would say, oh, I can't do that. I don't have enough money to tithe. Well, trust God with that. That's the first thing is become yourself. We grow as we make our own decisions. The second uh, implication, really it's an invitation, is this. It's to trust the living God. It's to trust the living God. Because God is alive, he defies our categories. We want to put God in a box. We want to limit him to some assumption we have about God. And he just breaks out every time. And he invites us to trust him. This is Moses' diagnosis of what went wrong with the parents' generation. Uh, In verse 32, he said, you, and he's addressing the current generation, as though they were their parents. He says, you are having no trust. There is no trusting, the Hebrew says, in the Lord your God. Now, what is this trusting business? This word, amen, is the Hebrew word, amen. Do you hear its similarity to amen at the end of a prayer? It's to confirm, to establish, to stand, to make something confirmed, to make something established, to make something stand. A little play on the word in Isaiah 7, 9, where the Lord says, if you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. That's that word, amen, used twice. So this is a good place where we can see the definition that we oftentimes use for faith. It's putting our weight down 
on God's faithfulness, on who God really is. Not who we think he is, not who we hope he is, uh, but who he really is. That's, that's biblical trust. Now, if you're not a believer yet today, you go, gosh, I'm sort of, this bothers me because I think about, is this saying I have to somehow check my, my brain at the door that I, I just trust and, and ignore my questions? No. Actually, what, what Moses is saying we need to do is not to close our minds around some pre-digested understanding of who God is. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying we need to open our minds to let the living God be the living God, and discover him on his own terms. See, that's what it means to trust, to put our weight down on God, not on some limited understanding of who he might be or who we want him to be in this situation. See how far off the Israelites were. In verse 27, this was their image of God. It's because the Lord hates us that he's brought us out of the land of Egypt. See, the the, the real way that we get guidance is not by looking into the outcomes and assessing which one's better. The wilderness, ah, oh, the promised land with all those Anakim, ah, which one will be better? Moses says, you know, that's not how you get to where you need to go. You look into the heart of God. You don't need directions. You need to know the guide. If you know his heart, the living God, then you'll be able to make the decisions that you need to make fearlessly. Emil Durkheim, sociologist, he says, you know, as he's analyzing religions of various cultures around the world, he says, really what religion's doing is, is people are worshiping uh, their own beliefs. He calls it the dominant cultural value. In a certain society where strength is the dominant cultural value, they say, well, bears are strong. Let's worship bears. And, and, and Durkheim says, actually, what they're doing is they're really worshiping themselves. They're fashioning God after their own image. They're making up a God. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1, 2,000 years earlier, where he says, we humans, he's giving this history of uh, of, of human religion. He says, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the living God, for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. We say, God, just like us. He hates us. I'd hate me if, if I were God and God hates me. <laughs> and Moses is saying, and that's never going to get you in the right place. What you need to know is God loves you. What you need to know is God has been carrying you, he says, as a father carries a child all along, all along. Verse 31, the Lord your God carried you just as one carries a child. Now, you, you may be a parent and you may know there are times where you have to say no to a child. Don't put your finger in the outlet. Do eat your vegetables. You've got directives. It's really clear. And, and they're going to go, oh, this just makes no sense, Mom. <laughs> you know, why? And if you're a loving parent, you'll say, you'll try to give some explanation. Well, electricity is not good for us when it's coming through our fingers. And, you know, because to grow big and healthy and strong, you need vegetables. And they say, why? And, you know, you realize that you know things about circuitry and electrical current and about nutrition that they're not going to be able to appreciate. It's not developmentally appropriate for them to know what you know. So they're not going to understand your mind. But eventually you'll say to them, because I say so. 
that's why. And you know what? They'll do it. Not because you're threatening them, but because they know your heart. They know through experience, whether they can articulate it or not, that you are the person who has bent over them when they cried. You are the person who has picked them up when they hurt. You are the person who has, at the expense of your life and freedom, bound yourself to their welfare and life and freedom. And here Moses points us right to the heart of God manifest in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus, who is God, come to reveal perfectly the heart of God. I have come to you that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's the motive. John says, from his fullness we've all received, grace upon grace. This is the living God who is taken from the joy of the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and showered the fullness of that on us. Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. Abide is a fancy word for live. You live in me because I'm living in you. Let me live in you. Now, you've got to become ourselves. We've got to learn to trust the living God. We don't need directions. We need to know the guide. Two little quick anecdotes that just occurred to me as I'm reflecting on this passage. One is um, a movie. And I'm guessing, half hoping, that many of you haven't seen this movie. But, and I'm not sure how I came across it recently. But Mr. Bean's Holiday. And I'm, you know, I'm somewhat ashamed to tell you this movie has absolutely captured my imagination. I watched it on a whim, and I can't get away from it. It won't let me go. Because I, 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 there's something going on in that movie that is very meaningful. And I'll, it's, uh, just in brief, it's a, it's, a, it's a story of two men, principally, who both live behind a camera. There's Mr. Bean, who just is an, sort of an innocent, who wanders through life with his own video camera. He gets a ticket to go to the beach in France Whoopee! And he does the happy dance, you know, and he's, and he takes his video camera wherever he goes and he just videotapes whatever he sees. It's always rolling, videotapes himself. And, and the other guy, uh, Carson Clay is very serious and deep. He's a profound thinker. He's a movie producer who's on his way also, uh, to the Cannes Film Festival. These two men who live behind a, a camera are, couldn't be more different from one another. Mr. Bean gets in all kinds of problems because he's paying too much attention to his camera. He's causing problems for himself, problems for everyone, missing trains, disaster upon disaster. He'll never make it to the beach. And Carson Clay is very scripted and deep and ordered. And he's manufacturing a whole world for himself and his audience. And at the end, you know who wins. It's Mr. Bean, who... Um, in the last scene, I don't think this gives too much away, he's walking cluelessly across the top of a building with his video camera, just looking through the video camera, and you realize he's going to walk right off the, the, the ledge, which he does, but just at that minute, a truck comes by, huge truck. And you see he walks across the back of that truck, and then a camper, just a, a couple feet lower, comes by and he walks. He goes across four lanes of, of traffic, just not even knowing he's walking on top. And eventually he gets lower and lower until he touches a cooler, a little wall, a surfboard, and then he's on the beach. And I'm thinking, what does it mean? You know, and I'm, I'm thinking, here, here I am trying to live my life, and I, have, like Carson Clay, I've got an image of what my life should be. And I'm working so hard to make it reality. It's just not yielding itself. I've got this image, and I'm, I'm projecting a, a mean God who won't let me become the kind of person that I want to be. I'm working so hard at it. And God's saying, would you just let go of that? 
because I love you and trust me and let me give you the life that I want to give you, the life for which I created you. And Mr. Bean, who just pays attention to whatever's real, whatever's delightful, whatever's good, ends up through all of his trials getting where he wants to go. And he's at the beach. And it turns out it's not really about the beach. It's about the magic of how he got there and who he became along the way. The other thing I want you to keep in mind, this is also in my head, is did you see the newspaper? The Seattle Times was at Friday with the pictures at Children's Hospital. With those construction workers outside the windows of the hospital for the kids there who are sick of the variety, whose lives are so vulnerable and frail right now, so um, ephemeral. These construction workers on something so solid and rigid and enduring have begun to write the names of these kids on the girders. Say hi to them. And they know that the kids know that these will be covered over and their names will be there forever. They don't know their future, but they know that now they are attached to something very stable because there's someone up there who decided to love them. And I think that's what Moses is trying to get through. There is something so stable about your life in the imagination of your creator and your redeemer. He has put your name on his heart. And I can't tell you exactly how it's going to work out. I'm not even going to tell you which decisions you need to make. But I can tell you this. You're safe. So I don't, I don't know what decisions you are facing today. Big ones, little ones. Go right, go left. Stay where you are. I know it's scary. But I want you to consider this. That if you know Jesus Christ, it might just be that you can consider yourself to be the right person in the right place at the right time. Living life with a living God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you describe yourself as the good shepherd. A shepherd doesn't require much of the sheep. But just to know that they're known. You know our names. And we recognize your voice as you call us. That's why we're here today. We may not even believe, but there's something that made us come here today. To hear your voice. And to understand somehow that you are the one calling us in your great love. Strengthen us to follow, to grow, to know that we're safe, and to trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.